0: I believe that we all really, honestly, do have our own genius. Meaning that there are some things that we could do, behave, or accomplish that nobody else could. I really believe that.
1: Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast. The podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of non-profits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is actually the first person to ever come on the Out of Hours podcast twice. Kevin Kelly helped launch and edit Wired magazine, and he's also a former editor and publisher of the Whole Earth Review. He is known for his technological optimism. He's written many books about everything from decentralization to looking at how technologies and inventions are a living system. He calls it a living organism. He is a very interesting person. He's done everything from travel the length of the US on nothing but a bicycle, uh, which we talk about in the first episode, which you should check out, to be a future advisor for the film Minority Report. He's also released a huge book of 50 years worth of photographs from his time in Asia. Again, you can check that out on the first episode. But today, we're actually talking about the huge amount of advice that he has, the wisdom he has to share. His writings appeared in so many publications like the New York Times, The Economist, Time, Harper's Magazine. But today we're talking about his most recent book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. I was sent this book actually before it was published. So some of the things we talk about may not have made it to the final book. And this podcast is actually, I must admit, very overdue. We recorded it, I think, almost a year ago. I took a long break for the podcast, um, but we're back now. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, It's a really interesting one talking about wisdom, you know, advice. What is it? Where can we learn it? We talk a fair bit about whether advice is actually useful. And then we talk a bit about some of his key learnings, some of the things that he shares in his book. Seth Godin says about this book, 100 years from now, when so much of the nonsense of our age is forgotten, people will still remember Kevin Kelly and his wisdom. I hope you enjoy It's good to chat again. I feel grossly underprepared. I have read your book, but there's so much in it that it's difficult to know where to start.
0: Well, that makes me that tickles me that because I felt that maybe there wasn't enough in it in this little book. But um, you're saying there's a lot. That's great.
1: I think the thing that's interesting to me is the themes that start to come up in it because you mm-hmm. see that there. It's one of those things. It's like when you talk about something long enough, you talk about enough stuff that ends up being themes that you don't really intend Mm -hmm. in being there, uh, which probably reflect values or reflect priorities. So Mm -hmm. for you, when I read it, the things that started to come out to me were things like exploration, family, kindness, Mm -hmm. um, time is more important than money,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: do it yourself, like a sense of self-sufficiency and um, quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. That's just me riffing. Is that accurate? I mean, how would you describe your values?
0: I think you nailed them pretty pretty well, that um, kindness, um, uh, kind of maybe a humbleness in terms of uh, uncertainty and doubt. Um, yeah, kind of a thrifty do-it-yourself-ness um, that, um, you know, is probably my whole catalog um, training of... Uh, uh, hip, the hippie background, maybe, it kind of go your own path. I, I guess kind of uh there's a prudence about it. That's an old-fashioned word that we don't use anymore. um th- There, I think that's another kind of maybe theme going through it.
1: Favorite one, or the one that comes to my mind is it's something to do with hats. I've written it down. Avoid yes. wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> don't
0: wear don't wear a hat with more character than you have. <laughs>
1: I, it, I, I felt triggered reading that. I
0: thought, <laughs> oh, God,
1: this is why. There's something about, like, you put a hat on, and you're like, in the quiet of your own bedroom, you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nervous, yeah and then you're out and about and you're like am i am i a triple <laughs> person you know exactly that it's like because it tells a bigger story than than you might be able to tell yourself and right. that made me laugh when i read that i thought oh god you've absolutely nailed it
0: <laughs> well i wasn't i wasn't trying to nail anybody but
1: <laughs> when's the last hat that you wore that was well i wear
0: a hat every day when i would i literally go out i wear a hat and I wear primarily um, a wide brim floppy hat called Tilly hat. Yeah. But I also wear a baseball hat um, when I'm getting in the car because I am bald. And, and my hat is very nondescript. It has no character whatsoever, although it's a yellow baseball hat. So some people recognize me from that.
1: I want to talk to you about, I'm sure you'll get asked this a lot, but it's an important question, which is what, how have you approached jotting down these lessons? Because I, funny enough, it was funny reading your lessons because I have a weird habit and practice of writing lesson life lessons as I go. They're almost like words of advice to me. So I say stuff like... Um, you don't, you often don't want to go to the party, but when you do, you never regret it, or you know, things like that, which are like kind of almost right. like advice from my past self to my present self.
0: That's good, yeah, I like
1: that. What's the origin of this? Like, when did you start jotting them down?
0: I, I've been collecting quotes by other people for a long time, and I actually made a book of cool tools, and I had like hundreds of them, many hundreds, and I put one at the bottom of every page and um, there was so much other stuff on the page nobody else noticed. But I was collecting quotes from others, and um, I never was writing my own, but I liked the form. I liked that really brief, succinct proverb, maxim. I, I am not in the habit of, make, of preaching or giving much advice uh, with our kids, I kind of maybe one piece of my bits of advice is that kids don't pay attention to what they say they only pay attention to what you do and so I try to do things I wasn't really a, a very preachy but something happened when I was you know 68 and I wanted to <clears throat> I wanted to get I decided I wanted to try and write some advice down and so I did I started writing and I tried to stick with that form of this tweetable quote. And I did uh, 68 of them, and I had my son in mind when I wrote them for my birthday present, which was kind of a Irish and um, apparently a Hobbit tradition where you give presents on your birthday. The weird thing was, uh, once I started doing it, they just kind of started to, to come out. When I realized that, then I just started to, to jot them down, trying to really be practical that was the thing. It was like I was really trying to, to make something that was actionable that I thought my kids could could do something with this. You could, If you knew this, you could change your behavior in some way, like you, the advice you just give of like, you know, go to the party, even if you don't think it because you will, won't regret it. And then I began to kind of like look around and then try and think about things that I knew. Uh, I was asking myself, what do I know that I think I could Put into a a sentence and something complicated, and I'd kind of work on it. Like it was like writing poetry, where like there's there's a complicated thing. Like say this: take your um, go to the party. It's like how can I say that in as few words as possible? And I'd work on it, and would just kind of go through different iterations. And so it became kind of a writing project.
1: Do you think there's such thing as? original advice or do you think that like you know how stories follow the same structure kind of generation after generation do you think it's the same with advice because you know some of the ones that you had i'm i kind of felt very buddhist in their origin so stuff like um forgiveness is for you not the other person yeah
0: Yeah, i mean so when i wrote like the forgiveness is something you do it was like i had kind of come to that conclusion but i you know i've read I've read a lot. I've read lots of stuff. I've read a lot of self-help books. I've read a lot of philosophy. I've read a lot. So I am sure that a lot of what I'm saying is just kind of recycling what the ancients have said. Um, But there's a quote that I really love. I don't know if I can dig it up. That someone else said, and they said it so well, that um, uh, I couldn't possibly do any better. And it said that um, everything has already been said. But nobody was listening, so everything has to be said again. And I thought yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Everything has been said, but nobody's listening, so we have to say it again. And so that's sort of where where I am. Um, I am trying to I try to as much as possible put these into my own words. And I had a I had a researcher that I hired to kind of try to confirm that. So um, um, so some of this is ancient Buddhist or ancient. Stoic or ancient philosophers, but I tried to put them in a word that was more that was conversational American English.
1: And you said you've read lots of self help books. Are there any particular ones that have changed practically changed the way that you behave?
0: There's uh, yes, um, Atomic Habits was very good. Um, earlier in in the kind of the first go around, there was a book. Called um, Time Something from the seventies, and it was about um, managing your time. It was one of the earliest time management books at all, and um, there are a couple of things that were really, really good that I use still today. I don't think I ever, I don't think I talked about this in advice, but the piece of advice was if you are finding yourself procrastinating on some something. Go into it full stop, like meaning like you do nothing. Sit there and your assignment is to do absolutely nothing at all. And after five minutes of like trying to do nothing, then you just sort of hop up and you can do the job. It's really weird. Um, and so there were there were things about managing your time, little tricks that I remember from, again, from the 70s. It was not that popular. But it was it was um, for me it worked, you know. In in the seventies, in the Whole Earth Catalog, we listed lots of. You know, the the, the bit of advice I have about um, interviewing or hiring people and interviewing came from a book called Smart Smart Hire. I don't remember the name of it, but anyway because of my role at the whole Earth catalog and reviewing books that were practical, there were, there were, you know, I would say if I got one or two bits f- from, from a book to keep, then that book was worth it.
1: Yes, yeah, interesting. Cause I guess I, I'm asking selfishly because I kind of have a love hate relationship with self-help books and, and, and self-improvement books. And I think like generally as on the love, but I, it's kind of a perennial question that goes through my brain, which is like, how useful is this? Because I feel like there's so often truisms or, you know, things that I say for myself as well that, that I take down and I write them down. And it's like, if I, how much have I actually applied this to my own life, you know? I
0: think, I think it's hard to sometimes to unravel because those things can seep in, particularly if you're reminded by them and they can influence you in ways maybe like, the next day you don't do it but in the back of your mind you there's a pattern mm-hmm. and you're kind of you can be biased in it and i think the thing the, the weird thing about um language human language what we're talking right now in my theory of the origins of language um the greatest asset of language wasn't that that we can communicate to each other that was sort of why it was made but the Thing that it did is it allowed us to have access to our own minds. Language is how we figure out ourselves. I think the self help stuff is sort of giving you language, giving you words that even if you're not consciously recalling them are uh, uh, enabling you to kind of make patterns, make new patterns. That we, if we have words for something, if we have a way of structuring it in language that gives us kind of access to ourselves, and can influence us in kind of subtle ways without us even, you know, being conscious. Well, I am following this this law, it, but but having read it, maybe being reminded of it, it gives us a pattern in our in our mind that we can that can influence us. So, I so I think a lot of the the influence of this advice and self help may not be at the conscious awareness level it can be deeper than that
1: what do you mean like how, do, how does that work What what is your theory
0: this little story that we tell ourselves we tell ourselves that in language okay i mean imagine trying to have some kind of internal dialogue if you didn't have any language how would you do that it, it doesn't really even work so um so it's, it's our self awareness is predicated on us having a language. That language might have evolved in order to communicate with others, but we're communicating with ourselves primarily. And that, 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 that has enabled that self consciousness that we have and that self awareness is because, because we have invented language and the ability to, to, to communicate with that. So, so while we've also used it to communicate with each other, we're actually using it to communicate and figure out what it is that we think. And so we have these ideas that we can structure and move around. And it's like a tool that enables us to, to be self-aware and conscious. I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine a consciousness that doesn't have language in it. It's really hard to, to see how that works. So that's one thing. But then the other thing about reading things and having a word for it, like if you like procrastination, that's a, That's a term, but once you have that term, that unleashes all kinds of other ideas and behaviors. Like so, so once I understand that there's a thing called procrastination, then I can observe it, then I can deal with it. But before that term was there, I can just slide by that. I mean, it was that that just having that word kind of engenders and generates. New ideas and, and and changes in behavior that are possible.
1: Hmm. There is the kind of seat of consciousness or the kind of non-egoic state, right? Which is just a sense of full being and observing. Right. And I guess, and right. I feel like that the closer you get to that, it's almost the closer you are to truly knowing yourself and being truly self-aware. So actually, in that in that way, language becomes a distraction from understanding who we are. You know, being somatic and understanding things in our body can be often overridden by words and go overridden by theories and things like that so yeah to me it feels like there's there's a there's a deeper sense of knowing that actually sits underneath language
0: I I agree I think there are multiple ways of knowing and I think that um language is not the only means but without language I don't think we go very far so it's it's um It's an enabling thing. It's not necessarily the end state or the, the, the highest, but it's a prerequisite in terms of getting anywhere. You know, I mean, it's like, um, other animals I'm sure have the same kind of state of awareness and being that we have, and they don't have language. Um, but I think I, I would submit and I don't know, I would submit that we have a much more complicated and complex and, more evolved kind of of awareness because of language.
1: I want to ask you a bit more about the actual book. Are there any particular bits or any particular truisms or, or experience led lessons that you were nervous to put in the book?
0: Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. That's a great question. You know, um, to be honest, there was um, the, the book, underwent a sensitivity read. So there were some things that maybe that on review I decided to change actually that they're, they're not in are They're different in the final book from what you saw and, and they were um, often around money Mm. in ways that I kind of, I've stated some things that, um, you know um, reflected probably privilege and other uh, stances. And so, Uh, So I amended it. And and so I would say in that case, it wasn't like, and originally I was sort of like reluctant, but like after being, um, uh, you know, alerted to them and reconsidering, I thought, yeah, okay, well, let me me amend that. Um, But in terms of myself, originally I thought, "Mm, do I want to put this in? Um, No, I don't think... I don't There's not a lot of love or advice or dating advice because I don't have any because I've never really dated, and i'm not i, I you know i I am not very good in I don't think I have any expertise
1: <laughs> well how, when did you meet your wife?
0: I met my wife who's from Taiwan, Chinese from Taiwan. I met her at a um international students' dinner in Athens, Georgia, where I was working at the time. And we didn't date at first, uh, but we dated uh, uh, later. And it was just my second girlfriend ever. And we actually uh, got engaged and then we broke up. Mm. We broke off the engagement. We decided that this was not going to work for cultural reasons. That was a pretty sad day. and um, But we decided to... um, after six months, I just felt that this could work. Um, and um, part, part of it was kind of accepting things, certain uh, things that I've, I was expecting. I've said, okay, that's not going to be present, so we'll just um, we'll go with this. And the curious thing is, um, so we and we, we decided to get married again. And at that moment, when we decided we were not in love,
1: when you decided to get married,
0: yes, it was a it was like it was like an arranged marriage that we decided to arrange ourselves. We said we can make we make good partners. We have a similar sense of humor. Um, and the curious thing is, is that every year since we've been more in love. So we're far more in love now we were when we got married. Harry <laughs> was like, well, we, we're partners here, this will work, we can do this. But um, we're far more romantic now than we were. It was, it was, so we kind of were starting really, really low with very low expectations.
1: Why did you decide to arrange your own marriage? What was the, what was the rationale behind it?
0: Because I think we got along very well for the most part and it was easy and comfortable. I just felt that this could work. You know, my wife, she, she, she doesn't have a mean bone in her body. She's, you know, very, very good. And it's like, this. I know this can work. I know this, we can make this work. There was just a feeling uh, that, that that would work. So she kind of agreed that it could work i have really no other explanation other than that and i guess i had spent most of my time as an adult in asia around people who had arranged marriages and i knew that i knew that not necessarily having the romance in in the marriage was not necessary and that um partnershipping was sort of more of what made those marriages work and so um i thought yes this this could still work
1: interesting because i think so lots of people at the moment are very i think there's a big wave especially with younger people of kind of obsessing over finding the perfect person looking into attachment Mm. systems looking into like the criteria of who's right and who's wrong looking at um star side you know looking at so many things outside of yourself to make whether something is a good partnership mm. and it feels like what you're describing is almost the reverse of saying yeah this is not a terrible partnership to begin with but you know i'm not looking for the one i'm looking for someone i no. can build the one with
0: Sure, sure sure yeah i i, I believe that there is probably ten thousand different women i could have married and been happy with yeah, it was much more than kind of finding your soulmate and much more of like, no, this is a partnership we're going to, we're going to, it's like not a contract, but it's an agreement, a promise that we're going to make this work. So um, I, I still have to say that I'm terribly lucky. I mean, it could have not worked very easily, but um, it, I, I, we, we lucked out. I've, I've been lucky throughout my entire life. Way beyond what I should be. Unfairly lucky in so many ways, and so um, this was another example of that. The 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 thing about um, that luckiness, yes, I mean, um, how do you deal with luck? You're in in terms of the entire world, you're incredibly lucky to be born where you were born and have the background. And so, how do we deal with that luck? Part of what I like to try to do is spread that luck in any way that I can. And this advice is partly one way to do that is to say, yeah, you, you put your position. This is my, one of my pieces of advice that I don't know if it's in that version you have, um, you put yourself in, you make yourself, uh, lucky by treating setbacks as temporary,
1: Mm.
0: not something that's native to you, not necessarily something that you are deserving or you can't escape from. But if you understand the setbacks are always temporary that can help you be luckier. They did a study of um, optimism and luckiness. And um, no matter the economic background of people, what they grew up in, how prejudiced people were or not, what opportunities were, they found that the people who saw themselves as lucky, who had some evidence of lucky being good for them, also believed that the things and hurdles in life that they met along the way were just temporary, whereas those that were sort of hard on their luck and constantly struggling came to view that as something that they couldn't escape from or that that was their destiny or that was their character, that their character was unlucky, that once they get out of this thing, they were going to have another one. Their lot in life was this, never-ending series of unfortunate events and that it wasn't temporary. What you expect kind of doesn't influence what happens to you. And so it doesn't entirely mean you're going to become a millionaire or a billionaire or succeed your dreams, but it does mean that you can shift. Luck is not distributed evenly, but we can all become a little bit luckier than where we started. And so the same thing about whatever it is that we're talking about, I will never be an athlete in any remote senses of the word, but I can be a little bit better than what I am now. So we can always improve. And there's no limit to how far we can improve. But we don't necessarily or reach the same heights. There's huge unevenness in the world, but we can always improve
1: as part of the book, one of the th- one of the quotes you have or one of the lessons you have is fully embrace what is the worst that can happen at each right. function in life. Rehearsing your response to the worst can reveal it as an adventure and rob it of its power to stall you. You have another one um, that I don't have here, which is around um, spending a time in your life living on the lowest means possible. Right, right. So you know that this idea is this kind of it feels like that's another theme that runs through the book, which is you know, rehearsing the worst and, and actually that being a method to avoid fear, to avoid fear, kind of dictating decisions right, in right. your life. What's an example for you in your life when you've kind of rehearsed, what's the worst that can happen or you felt the need to do that?
0: Sure. I, 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 I have done that from when I was backpacking in the, the Appalachian trail, um, I was, literally reduced what I had, what I owned for those, those months to just, you know, a sleeping bag and very little else. And I was on foot and I was eating oatmeal. And um, it was an attempt to kind of reduce my possessions to the ultimate minimum to see if I could still be content. Mm. And then I did another thing when I left college after my one and only year where I was living on the beach in Rhode Island with with very little again trying to see if I could find some sense of happiness with very very little material and then finally I, as I said I spent a lot of time in um, in Asia and particularly like in the places like the Himalayas or places where there was uh, I was living with people and traveling and staying with people who had very very little um, possessions and I had more than they had, but I was also trying to as much as possible strip down with what I had. And in all those cases, um, I was deliberately trying to imagine myself like, well, you know, if I tried to do something really grand and I had to come back and live in a tent and eat oatmeal, um, I think I could do that and not be unhappy, so like if my startup failed and I had to do that, I'm willing to take that risk. It's not that I wanted to do it, but I'm willing to take that risk because i've I've already kind of lived like that, and I know that that's it's hard, but it's something that I could get through it's a temp; it would be a temporary setback, and so that gave me power to then take a risk later on with the idea that yeah this the risk, risk is we might lose our house or whatever it is. Okay, that's fine. I've I've built my own house. I can I've lived in a tent. I, you know, I we that's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'm willing to take that risk.
1: How much of that do you think is just knowing the unknowable? Like like defining what is unknown to make it less scary, a kind of stoic method.
0: Hmm. That's probably a large part of it. Survival training and stuff. Is a lot about that, where you are exposed to all the things that could go wrong, so that when you do confront it, you don't get overwhelmed with fear and confusion. So you're kind of rehearsing Mm. all the all the bad things. And um,
1: when's the last time that you felt afraid of doing something?
0: mm, Well, okay. I've been wanting to go back to Iran for a while, but I'm afraid to go back to Iran. I know that actually that it's very safe in Iran right now, even for Americans, but I'm like, if something did go wrong, it would really be bad. And so I am afraid to go to Iran. Most of my afraidness is not like fear, and, and but in Iran, I would fear for my physical safety. But um, most of the time I'm not fearing for that. I'm afraid more like um, that might be a disaster, that might not work out, or that might fail. Mm. That that kind of that kind of fear of failing is um it's something that that you have to kind of, that, that I'm always um, massaging because a certain amount of that kind of risk is is necessary to do something really good. At the same time, I I don't want to fail. And so, um, it's a, it's a navigation of something that has just the right amount of risk, but not too much. A lot of people talk about entrepreneurs as being actually really good risk managers. Not that they're avoiding risk, but they're learning to, uh, to manage the risk. So it's kind of like, like hedging bets. You have, you think you have backup plans, you have other stuff. And so, um, when I do a big project, I'm working on a project right now that might, really fail and so i kind of go into it little by little i'm kind of like taking baby steps i'm not trying to involve too many people get it too big at first so i'm kind of managing the risk of it Hmm. Um, if it did fail it's not going to be any harm to me personally really but i'm just trying to avoid failure
1: you know, you talk a bit in your book about like optimization versus exploration. As one gets older, one gets to know oneself better. And it's very easy to say, oh, no, but I always like the arrabbiata. I always like yes. this thing on the menu. And what for you, how would you define the difference between like self-awareness and knowing yourself well and kind of putting yourself in a box and closing yourself to new opportunities? Like, are there particular things that you have to fight yourself for optimizing?
0: Yes. And, and so just the, 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 the bit of advice, by the way, is that mm-hmm. this is actually based on some research, is that um, there's always a contrast between exploring things is inefficient and coming back to the things that you know and exploiting them, mm-hmm. becoming better. So like if you are an artist, should you be playing your old songs because the fans want it or should you be writing new songs? Um, and like at a concert, how much, do you, how much of the old do you play? Or if you are an ex, um, going to a restaurant, do you get the, the dishes that you know are good or do you try new ones? And what is the, what is the ratio? And uh, the ideal ratio in terms of researching all kinds of, of actual lab experiments was one-third of exploration and two-thirds of exploitation. Okay, So that means that if you go to a restaurant, order two dishes that you love and one dish that you've never had before.
1: How do they find that out?
0: There was a bunch of different different uh, studies of um hiring people like you' were interviewing people and like when do you stop and figure that you've seen everybody and when you go back to commit to, to someone that you've already seen and they were doing they were doing studies like that in terms of the outcomes, people judging and reviewing the outcomes that was one one thing that they did so personally for me kind of like to battle that to make sure that still there's one third exploring, one third new, one third trying stuff that you don't know. Be like, um, I really tried not to sit in the same chair all the time (laughs) at a table or for dinner. Every now and then I want to kind of shift things that are routine, Mm -hmm. try and go home in a little different way than normal, just to see something different to provoke that to not get in the rut to not make those kinds of things a habit so yes i'm i you know i, I think about that a lot because there 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 are there are um things that i like and that i know about myself and so they should be honored and there's no reason not to enjoy them but there's also i like to, to kind of mix it up every now and then to kind of say well just to make sure do I really is that do I really like that? Am I really like that? Is this really the best thing? That way you can kind of keep changing your mind. But
1: is the goal still to have the best experiences? Or you do you sometimes think there's value in actually just being uncomfortable for being uncomfortable's sake?
0: No, I don't believe in being uncomfortable for uncomfortable's sake. I think uncomfortable is a, a price that I'd be willing to pay.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, Try that enough. makes sense. <laughs>
0: I think the the goal, again, is not even necessary to accumulate experiences. That's, again, some of my advice is that don't work to uh, acquire, work to become something. But I think in the end, what we get the most satisfaction from our existence, from our life, is when we matter, is when we do something that matters. And that can be small things. I mean... To be the person that matters, you can just be nice to somebody. You can go visit someone. That's that you at that point you matter. At the end of your day, you want to have mattered to others, mattered to the world, mattered to yourself, and so um, experiences are part of that. They're again they're 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 part of what helps us matter, but they're not really necessarily the the end in themselves.
1: I want to ask you about one other one where you wrote, if you're doing something that you're hiding from others, it's probably not good for you. What's that based on?
0: So this based on my observation of myself and my kids. Yeah. I, I think if, if there's something going on that you don't really want other people to see, you have to kind of ask yourself, um, is it, is it good for me? And I think humans evolved with very little privacy. We evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to live in these old tribes where everybody knew everything about you. I mean, just at least even reading some of the contemporary um, Aboriginal societies where they were still could be observed in living in those in that manner. And everybody literally knew everything, heard everything. There was very little what we would call privacy. And so we are used to that. That's not. Abnormal for us, you know. Those societies um, had conflict, but they would resolve them very quickly. And I think that kind of transparency is generally better for everybody. Um, it's harder to manage in our life today, our modern life. But I think as much as possible, transparency is good, uh, particularly in a family. I think if you are trying to, if you do find yourself hiding something, just ask yourself, is it, is it really good for me? And I would just conclude by saying, I think that, you know, probably a lot of your listeners and a lot of people I know have internalized a lot of this information over the years, but I put it into the book so that they could hand it to somebody who was young, who I really wished I had really wish I had read this when I was younger yeah. and um and i made this for the young people in your lives
1: can i ask one last question because i yes. I didn't ask you talk a lot about work and about kind of choosing like pursuing things that you find interesting because as i was reading it i was thinking hmm like a lot of this actually is is it very idealistic advice you know advice of things that everyone would like to do but do you tr-
0: yeah like, like i hear an example of that would be try and work somewhere where there's no word for what it is that you do. Mm. That's a very high bar. Yeah. That's a really high bar If to, to work on an area or in something where there's no word for what it is that you do. Mm. That's a very high bar. So yes, you're right. I, I do have a very idealistic view of, of this. And I would say um, each one of us, you, I, um, all your listeners, everybody in the world that I've met have a, Each of us have a different face and we have a different mix of talents and abilities and experiences. I I believe that we, we all really honestly do have our own genius, meaning that there are some things that we could do or behave or accomplish that nobody else could. I really believe that. It doesn't matter where you've lived or your iq or anything i think everybody has some weird thing that they could do that nobody could do but i don't think that necessarily the tools or technologies are available Mm. for everybody to have that so imagine if you know mozart had been born before we invented the piano (laughs) or the symphony what a loss to the world that would have been Mm. You've been growing up, you know, potato farming somewhere, and you never encountered anything beyond maybe you know a flute or something. Yeah. So, um, so we have some. For me, I have a moral. I feel a moral obligation to try and increase the tools uh, available to people. And of course, we want to make sure that everybody has clean water and education, just as a bare minimum to enable that. But. I do believe that people have their own genius, and what we want to do is make a world where everybody has a chance to move into to express that and share that genius. And that means um, that when they do, um, there's several things that happen. When they do, um, they're doing things that they enjoy doing, because it's easy for them to do, Mm be really good at it and because it's value um only if they can do generally um people will pay them for it and i think it's it's i think it's possible that you can find a job that you're good at but you maybe you don't i mean you could find two of the three but um I think that people are more satisfied and they can matter more. They can make more of a difference if they can arrive at that place. So I think we should always be aiming towards it. The challenge is actually figuring out what it is that you're best at, the only what only you can do. And that's that was one of my favorite advices is don't be the best, be the only. That is a very, very difficult thing. And I think for most people, including me, It takes all our lives to figure that out. There are some precocious people who are very young and they have a very clear idea from the beginning of what they're good at. Those are exceptions. Those are the child prodigies in some ways. Most of us, and again, including me, it takes takes our entire life to kind of keep figuring out what it is that we're the only at. Even though it takes all your life, that's fine. Because it's still something you can aim for. And, um, you know, for most people, like if they could have a, a career or a job where they like doing it and they're good at doing it and they get paid well to do it, that's that Holy Trinity is sort of that's enough. But I'm saying, no, 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 actually, there's a fourth one. The fourth one is the one where only you can do it. And that's um, when you can reach that, that's best for the world that's best for you, but it may take all your life to get there, but you want to be aiming for that the whole way.
1: Mm. Okay, I'm glad I asked you that. It's a, it's a life's journey, isn't
0: it? it? Because it's a very high bar, because we're totally opaque to ourselves. Humans are uncannily opaque to ourselves. Knowing, And by the way, that's why you want to have a need to have people around you. You need to have friends, you need to have family, you need to have customers, you need to have all these people because they're. that's the only way you can kind of figure out what you're good at and who you are. You, you can't do it on our own.
1: Did you ask people like what you were good at or did you do particular things that helped you like, illuminate it?
0: Well, well the, the, the main thing is to really listen to feedback and criticism. Mm. I always assume that whenever someone's criticizing that they're right. Mm. It's like, there's something in there that they, that they're right about. And, um, so if you listen to critics and feedback and complaints, you learn incredible a lot about what it is that you're doing, what you're good at and what you are, uh, you know, and if you can kind of keep moving, you can find out what it is that you do only. And, um, uh, if you can that's a superpower
1: mm. and it neatly links to the one of the things in your book which is the your flaws are the same as your virtues or their yes the
0: right right there's there's very little difference between stubbornness and persistence except the 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 the, um, the reason <laughs> and, and you know does it matter or not if it doesn't matter it's stubbornness if it does matter it's persistence but those those are often in the same the same person, mm. and it's, uh, that's my observation of being around some very accomplished, <laughs> remarkable people, Steve Jobs and beyond, is that their great qualities were also their great vices and weaknesses. You know, at Wired, um, uh, we had several encounters with Steve Jobs. I, I didn't like him at all. Really? Yeah, I thought he was a jerk. Unfortunately, I thought he was brilliant, early, brilliant jerk. Whereas I I have spent some time with Jeff Bezos and I have great, great admiration for Jeff. I'm really, every time I meet him, I even admire him more. So it's not about your power or wealth or something. It's just Jeff has decided to really try and be not a jerk. <laughs> and Steve, brilliant as he was, you know, that was that was his flaws.
1: All right, Kevin, I'm going to let you go.
0: All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you might consider leaving a review. You can head to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and just hit the five stars. Or if you're feeling generous, you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash Hours, where you can send me a message and buy me a coffee.